This is Jeffrey Pfeffer, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic. And this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure to stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. Sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkuscom slash 0704 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkuscom slash 0704 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Today's episode features Jeffrey Pfeffer. Jeff is a longtime intellectual hero of mine. He's the co-author with Bob Sutton of an amazing book called Hard Facts, Dangerous Half-Truths, and Total Nonsense. Wrote that several years ago about a lot of the myths and misconceptions we have about how to be a good manager. And now he's taken aim at the billion-dollar industry that is leadership development with his new book, Leadership BS. There's a lot of bad advice in that billion-dollar industry that is leadership development. And Jeff takes aim at all of it and aims to replace a lot of that BS with solid, empirical, evidence-based research on what it takes to be a successful leader. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope you learn a lot about the evidence-based leadership practices Jeff advocates for. And so without further ado, our interview with Jeffrey Pfeffer. So who are you and what do you do? Who am I? I'm Jeffrey Pfeffer. I have taught organizational behavior uh, for probably 40 years, including 36, uh, maybe more than, way more than 40 years, including uh, since 1979 at Stanford Graduate School of Business at uh, Palo Alto, California. And um, what I mostly do is cause trouble for people who, uh, because I try to get people to think, which is oftentimes a very uncomfortable process. Yeah, I'll I'll say, uh, you and I are in a similar in a similar profession, and and the people who aren't thinking are usually the the problem. The people who are just sort of nodding their heads and not thinking about it, which is which is actually what led me to um, hard facts, dangerous half truths, and total nonsense a long long time ago, which called into question a lot of common sort of management wisdom and those sort of uh, untested ideas among management that I um, now use in my organizational behavior class, which is awesome. I also have a, so I have that in the fall and then I have a leadership class that uh, I think will have a new textbook in their curriculum, which is this great new book called Leadership BS that we're here to talk about today, which I, I, can I, can I assume that what sort of inspired both books was the same, this kind of, there's a lot of BS out there, let's confront it. Although Leadership BS is probably the more aggressive title. Um, I think I think that's one of the things. I think leadership BS. I think hard facts was that I, Bob Sutton and I believed and still believe that management needs to be founded on more science and less, um, you know, less kind of conventional wisdom or ideology or rank speculation or storytelling. Um, I think leadership BS 
is uh, has in addition to that another motive behind it. The the leadership field is just filled with hypocrisy, so which just irritates me. I don't know; it's some kind of congenital defect. Um, so you see CEOs and other leaders stand up and tell these stories about how wonderful they are and how fabulous their organization is and how great their leadership skills are. And then you talk to the speakers bureaus that book them and the people or the you know the seminar companies, and they'll say this guy or this woman is the worst human being to work with. They don't, they don't exhibit any of the qualities or traits that they tell other people they should do. So leadership, I think, and I think the, the field of management in general has an issue with dealing with evidence and becoming a little more science-based, that's for sure. But leadership has the additional problem of that it is just, it's just filled with hypocrites. Yeah, you, you actually said in the, in the intro to the book, and I, and I thought this was great, that the leadership in, as an industry, the leadership industry, consulting and speaking and books and all of that sort of has, has failed everyone, which is, uh, I thought it was a great way to, to put it, that that's just the whole industry has failed us. Yeah, and it has failed us because, first of all, it's a large industry. The estimates are somewhere between 14 and 50 billion a year just in the United States. But, uh, but the, the fact that, uh, that 50, 60, 70 years uh, on, uh, by every measure, Gallup's uh, employee engagement measure, um, any of the human resource consulting firms who do employee surveys, employee engagement, conference boards, job satisfaction measure, uh, measures of workplace bullying, um, the measures of trust in leaders, such as the Edelman Trust Index, um, the tenure of leaders, how many leaders are having career derailments. Um, all of these measures indicate that nothing is getting better and that the levels are pretty bad and that the employee engagement is low and, and leaders are, are having trouble doing their jobs and many companies are themselves dissatisfied with their own leadership development activity and with their own, um, you know, availability of good leaders uh, to, to facilitate and, and promote their subsequent expansion. And so, and for all these reasons, I think the evidence is pretty clear that workplaces are in bad shape and therefore the leadership industry has failed. I, I, no argument there, although sadly we're uh, this teeny, the podcast is this teeny little quarter of the leadership industry, but hopefully the one that hasn't failed. I, do, you, do you think, let me ask you this, do you think some of the problem is that, I remember this was like the opening lecture uh, in the opening plenary session of my doctoral program, so the problem with leadership as a field is that the people who get in to study it usually get in for the wrong reasons. In other words, sort of, th- they get into it for all of the the money and the traveling around and talking about how great they are rather than the idea of like actually trying to teach here's what we know works based on all of this sort of stuff because it's that's the harder lesson I think the the easier thing is just sort of like it's sexier it's cooler and that's what people stick with and I think that's why people get into it sort of for the wrong reasons um, I would say that most of the academics I know who've done leadership research are actually pretty good people and I think they're in it mostly for the right reason, but the problem with the leadership industry is that the fraction of that industry that is represented by people with terminal degrees in a relevant field um, who have any kind of intellectual rigor um, is, is, is relatively tiny. Many of the people, so you look at who's on, well, I did this. I decided one day, having written the book, that I ought to make sure that I was saying things that were true. So I went to Inc. Magazine um, because I did a Google search and it came up with this list of the top 50 leadership experts. And I stopped 
after I went through the top 20, but of the top 20, only five have PhDs in a relevant field. One has no degree at all beyond high school. Um, two of them, including the number one figure in the field, has a degree in a, a doctorate in, in divinity, which is consistent with my view that a lot of leadership education is about lay preaching and inspiration. It's not about science at all. So I don't think the problem is so much the academics. It's, um, though, it's, though there's a little issue, which we'll talk about in a minute if you want, but I think the problem is that most of the people doing leadership education, leadership coaching, leadership development have no relevant, uh, no relevant, no relevant background at all. Yeah, no, so I, I totally agree. I, sh I should have clarified that the speech was done in a manner of actually trying to weed out the potential future academics who wanted to be uh, in the Inc. Top 25. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. We're being very delicate with names here, but I, I've seen that list, and I know exactly who you're, ta <laughs> you're talking about. And in fact, actually, you did the same thing in the in the book, where each chapter is just sort of this delicate reference to um, certain people that if you're in the industry or you research the industry or you research the actual leaders like we academics do, you kind of catch. Um, but I also I also name names, of course. Well, yeah, probably, true. Will probably get me in the trouble, but it's okay. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Um, so I think there's there's kind of two things I really um, wanted to focus in on. The the first was, and maybe I, let's actually let's do this in reverse order. But I, I, the the chapter I loved the most was talking about this sort of servant leadership idea. But before we get into that, um, I think so much of the people that are in that top twenty five list are really focusing in on the traits and behaviors and characteristics of great leaders. And you you actually kind of break a lot of them down and, and say, hey, you know what? Uh, a lot of these aren't all that helpful all of the time. And sometimes doing the opposite is actually what's in the best interest of everybody in the organization and the leader. That That is certainly correct. Um, so one of the problems, I think, with all of this, um, you know what goes on is that people have this list of, of of positive traits of leaders, which are kind of a wish list of how we would like the world to be, and they don't ask a very simple question, which is what percentage of leaders have these traits or characteristics or engage in these behaviors. So therefore, we don't know very much about whether or not they work or not. Um, and the, I think to the extent that we do have data, it suggests that doing the opposite of what is normally advocated is probably a good thing. So the, uh, you know, this, this would take us into modesty. The opposite of modesty is probably narcissism. And there's an enormous research literature on narcissism, which expands almost on a daily basis, which suggests that um, uh, possessing narcissistic rather than modest traits is probably much more likely to get you hired, to get you promoted, uh, to get you a big salary, and to keep you longer in your job. So um, so, so many effective leaders are narcissists. Uh, Michael McAbee wrote a fabulous book some years ago called The Productive Narcissist. I was wondering if you were going to bring that up. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. So that would be one example. I think another example is telling the truth, uh, you know, which is kind of a fundamental tenet of most religions, etc. People ought to tell the truth. But, but, but that's at variance with what we know about not only leaders, but, but, but average normal behavior. So the, there have been studies done, pretty rigorous studies, published in peer-reviewed journals, that so shows that the average person lies twice a day, that there are relatively few sanctions for lying. And one of the things I do in that chapter is go through in domain after domain and show um, how much, you know, how many people lie or at least misrepresent the facts. I don't know if you want to call it a lying. You know, so we have a political candidate now who's, I think, leading in the Republican nomination. And, uh, you know, the other day I challenged somebody, I said, you need, besides, besides his name, you need to tell me one thing that Donald Trump says. 
that is a, that is any basis in fact he's for instance said that immigra- immigrants and immigration causes crime it's a lot of data that suggests that's completely incorrect he says he's published the best selling business book uh in history that is factually incorrect and has been fact checked by the people who do that um you know he says he's going to get mexico to pay for the wall etc you can go down the list i mean there is a he's he's called barack obama a muslim and, and so i mean the, you know we but, but not just in politics and business as well, the tobacco industry executives who testified they knew nothing about the studies done in their own companies, that uh, that smoking caused cancer, and of course in the high technology industry, the software industry has a term called vaporware, which reflects the fact that that software is sold with uh, unrealistic delivery times and an unrealistic list of features. Uh, so that's why it's called vaporware. So um, in industry after industry and in example after example, the idea that you need to be truthful to be successful is probably wrong. So there, <laughs> first thing I would say when, when people say, here's the traits of leaders and Leaders need to do this, that, and the other thing. I would say, you know, let's get a list of people that you consider to be successful leaders. Go to Fortune's list of, you know, most admired leaders or whatever and ask a simple question, how many of these people seem to have these traits? And and, and they don't. Because most, most of what we talk about is what we would like the world to be like rather than what it is. Yeah, I was going to ask, is so on like, you know, truthfulness or any of these traits, they're, they're definitely sort of how we like how we would love the world to be. And if you could attain leadership and sort of keep that, would that be ideal or is it really just, it's not realistic and there are trade-offs that are sort of have to be made on that path to power, et cetera. I think there are trade-offs that have to be made and I'm not sure that we would actually want some of the traits. So everybody says, um, you know, I want people to tell me the truth. Uh, That isn't true. You know, go, go, go. You know, so I have a friend who I discussed in the book, a former student of mine, who went into an organization and they said, we believe in honesty and transparency and authenticity, and we, and, and in order to get better, we would like you to deliver honest feedback to your peers and colleagues, which is, by the way, true. If you want to get better, you probably should deliver honest feedback. So this woman told her boss what she thought of her, and she got fired, of course, because the boss doesn't want to hear. We don't want to hear about her imperfections. You know, my favorite song, my theme song is kind of, you know, for that book chapter would be Fleetwood Mac. Tell me lies. Tell me sweet little lies. You know, when, you're, when your partner looks at you and says, does this outfit make me look fat? The correct answer is no. Right, regardless of what the truth is. No, I th- well, I th- of course. I think it's sort of like, um, I remember uh, I remember at the, TED, the early, early TED conference, Tony Robbins having this moment where he said, raise your hand if you like surprises. And then he said, no, you're all liars. You like surprises you like. You don't like all surprises. And I think that's the same thing with the truth, right? We like the truth when yeah. it makes us feel good. We don't necessarily want it when uh, it, it is the sort of brutal facts, as it were. Yeah. So um, let's transition a bit from those those traits to um, a model that I think gets a gets a lot of play. A lot of people in that Inc. top twenty five and all of these sort of lists of of top leaders kind of talk about it as, as aspirational, which is that servant leadership model. The idea that the best leaders put everybody else first, and then comes them, etc. There, there. Every year, there's a different book sort of outlining it. Ever since Robert Greenleaf back in the day, and some of it has some empirical basis, but a lot of it doesn't really help either the leader or the followers. Well, so empirical basis is interesting. And so let me make a little clarification here. So, so a lot of the leadership research says if you do, do X, 
um, your employees or the people in your work unit will be more engaged or more, um, you know, uh, work harder, have better performance, etc. And that literature, I, w I would agree with. So, 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 so this is empirical research that shows, you know, if you behave or do the following, a better results will follow. That's that is correct. That's like saying in the medical industry that hand washing is a desirable practice because it helps the spread of disease, which is also correct. Um, but that doesn't ask that, that doesn't ask the following question, which is which I think is very important. I think in a medical case, what percentage of doctors wash their hands? Not enough. Why? And what could you do to change that? Those are the more important questions. So yes. Servant leadership is a great thing. How many leaders behave as servant leaders? That's an interesting question. I think relatively few. Certainly, you know, Simon Sinek's famous book, Leaders Eat Last, should have been retitled Leaders Should Eat Last, not that leaders do eat last. In a world in which the ratio between CEO and um, frontline compensation has ballooned from, I don't know, 20 to 1 or 30 to 1 or 40 to 1 to more than 300 to 1, it is hard to make the case that leaders are eating last. Maybe they should, but not many of them are. Hmm. You know, I, I would agree with you. I think there's a there's a danger, too, in that kind of aspirational model of, of A, it's not the majority of the, the instances observed, but B, I think it can lead to, and I love that the book kind of almost ends with, with these notes, it can lead to people thinking that that leadership is just give and give and give and give and give of yourself and not take time to take care of yourself, which as a leader is, is hugely important. There are times where that's, it's important to eat first or in the middle. Yep, that, 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 that is absolutely correct. And one of the things that I think a lot of this discussion, not our discussion, but the discussion in the world, overlooks is so people ask me all the time, my most common question having written this book is, well, what should I do to be a successful leader? And my response is, how do you define success? Because the interests of the individual and the interests of the organization or the work unit of which that individual is a part are not perfectly aligned. I mean, you know, Carly Fiorina, who's also running for president, got fired and walked out of Hewlett-Packard with $41 million. As I tell people, please fire me. You know, so, uh, you know, uh, Stan O'Neill drove Merrill Lynch into the ground. He left with $140 million. So, you know, did, did Stan O'Neill do, do a good job for Merrill Lynch? It depends upon whether you're Mr. and Mrs. O'Neill or a Merrill Lynch employee. So I, this idea that there is a relatively small, unitary, uh, correlated set of criteria that uh, that are that that measure a leader's success is just is just wrong. That what's good for leaders and what's good for the organization are often in conflict. Do you think some of this is led by the idea that we kind of have a culture that says everybody should sort of aspire to to leadership, everybody should push towards this, and that's the success is just are you moving up the hierarchy? You you have a line in power that I I love, which is the idea that you can have power or you can have autonomy, but you can't have them both. So pick which one you want. And I, I remember reading that, and that kind of tipped me off that like, well, maybe I want autonomy. So maybe I need to rethink what it is to be a successful leader in my own case. Do you, th do you think that culture of aspiring to climb the hierarchy is part of that? I, I think it's not of a, I think it's more than a culture of aspiring to climb the hierarchy. I think it's a culture of some overly simplistic, you know, what was Joan Didion's book, the, the Year of Magical Thinking. I think a lot of organizational leadership and organizational management writing is filled with magical thinking. That, and particularly the magical thinking of, they're not trade-offs. Yes, I can be at the top of the organization, and I can have a wonderful family life and close relationships with all of my significant, uh, the significant people in my, uh, in my world. Um, uh, that's clearly incorrect. I mean, you know, you've got people who are sort of basically throwing themselves all in 
to their to their jobs and their careers. They, in general, tend to outperform other people simply because they put in more time. Uh, the idea that uh, you know I can be authentic and tell people the truth, and also all, they're all going to like me. I mean, there 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 are there are hosts of trade-offs as we think about navigating the organizational world. And it strikes me that one of the huge problems is we don't like to acknowledge those trade-offs. We can have it all. Hmm. And therefore, we don't think in a very hard way, and we engage in a lot of magical thinking. And so we've arrived at, again, sort of how we, how we started a discussion around the book, which is around thinking and trying to teach people how to think and think properly about successful leadership, about their own lives, about what they want, all of that sort of stuff. Um, kind of cool little closure there. I, I wonder if we could we shift a bit. The book is awesome, Leadership BS, Fixing Workplaces and Careers One Truth at a Time. I wonder if we could shift a bit from the book to you and ask you our five questions, our lightning round that we ask everybody. The first question, what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, the best advice I've ever received was early in my career when I was told. It wasn't advice. It was, I guess it was kind of advice. The best advice I ever received was from Richard Hoffman at the University of Chicago, who said I had a choice. I could do what the world wanted me to do. I could do what I wanted to do. And, <laughs> but, but I couldn't necessarily do both. And I decided it goes back to this autonomy versus power thing. I decided that, you know, you, most people have only one life to live, and so you might as well live it your way. And so implicit in that question was the advice, uh, you know, to do what you what you want and what you need to do. And I guess the other good piece of advice, which wasn't kind of personal advice, my one of my favorite songs is Ricky Nelson, who's now a dead rock star, who's uh, uh, part of Ozzy and Harriet, Theo, one of the, the, the Ricky and whatever. Anyway, so Ricky Nelson sang a song called Garden Party as my favorite line. You can't please everyone, so you've got to please yourself. Hmm, that's good. Um, what's the average day look like for you? I don't have an average day. Every day is different, which is part of my chaos. Uh, but the, So the average day for me, particularly recently, is multitasking. We just bought a house. My wife has said, you're in charge, me, of, of getting it fixed up. Uh, you know, just before I talk to you, I talked to a floor man. So my average day is, you know, reading the paper, doing some writing, you know, working on this house project, uh, doing interviews, uh, trying to uh, supervise some doctoral students. So my, my well, one of the things that makes my life interesting and also a little chaotic is that I have uh, a variety of interests and I'm interacting with a variety of people in a variety of different domains on a daily basis. You see, I think that sounds more engaging than even having yeah, an average day, so that's great. Um, what are you reading right now? Um, in terms of books or articles or what? Uh, I guess whichever, books, books uh, prominent articles, whatever. Um, so I am probably weird. Um, I'm definitely weird. Um, I'm an academic. I think of myself as a social scientist. And so almost every day, um, I will read some academic article on a topic of interest to me. Um, there was an article that came out of Russia. There's a series of articles that, that essentially address the question of do nice people finish last? And by the way, the answer to that is mostly yes. Um, <laughs> do narcissists succeed? Yes, mostly yes. And so I, re I tend to read a lot of academic research on, um, on topics of uh, substantial interest to me. Uh, now, um, and to some extent, I think leadership BS sort of answers this next question, but what do you believe that most people don't? Um, what do I believe that most people don't? Almost everything. Um, you know, I believe that, you know, that, that the path to power requires you to oftentimes to do things that are more like Machiavelli than, um, uh, than, than, than what uh, the servant leadership literature would tell you to do. I believe that your first responsibility is to um, 
maintain your position because I don't care all the wonderful things you want to get done and you can't get done if you're not in a position of some power and authority. If you, if you get yourself fired, uh, you're not going to be able to get much done. I believe that um, immodesty, self-aggrandizement is probably better than being too modest. I believe that you know a certain amount of strategic misrepresentation, which is a nice euphemism for telling fibs, is probably a good thing. It's the source of success of Steve Jobs, about whom there's both been a biography and now a biopic, a uh, documentary rather, and a biopic uh, recently done. It was one of the most successful executives in history. Um, I believe, consistent with the literature in sociobiology, that self-deception is a great trait, and that and that great entrepreneurs are great at, at, at deceiving themselves about their chances for success. No one would start a new business if they if they were a statistician and looked at the odds. So I believe that you know that 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 would be a partial list. We could go on, but I think that's enough. No, that's a, that's a pretty solid list. So um, the title of the book is Leadership BS. The title of this podcast is The Radio Free Leader. In in your view, what makes someone a leader? Um, well, that's an interesting question. It's a question I got yesterday when I gave a talk at Google. Um, so a lot of people say, well, Jeffrey, you have described people who occupy very senior roles, but they're not real leaders because they define leaders in the sense of the characteristics where you have to be authentic, etc. And if you're not, you're not a real leader. To me, I wouldn't do that that way. I would define leader as, a, you know, if you occupy a, leadership, a leader role, if you're a CEO, if you're a senior executive in an organization, either profit or nonprofit, if you're a person uh, with a senior influential position in a governmental agency, you are a leader. So I define leaders by the, by the roles that they occupy. And I think if people do occupy those roles, find themselves in that uh, position, one of the first things you do is dispel all of the junk that the industry has failed them in serving up. And first step in doing that, I think, leadership BS, fixing workplaces and careers one truth at a time. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. And thank you for, for reading the book and having this much interest in it. I very much appreciate that.